0: this morning to Philippians chapter 3. Um, I don't have a study guide for you this morning, actually kind of by design. I really wanted to more or less share a, a testimony with you, although it is a message and it does have uh, outline and form. You can take notes if you like and you'll find the outline right there in Philippians uh, chapter 3. We have... Uh, closed the chapter at least as far as my series goes on uh, Genesis and I hope that the two things I really wanted to get across have landed one is that every important teaching of the Bible has its roots in Genesis 1 2 and 3 you can't you cannot dispense with those chapters or treat them lightly and have any gospel or bible left they're, they're foundational to all that follows. And uh, the second part of the series was that because of that, and by inspiration, uh, the Bible is also accurate in its literal explanation of how things started. And we don't have to be afraid that science is going to somehow one day prove us all wrong. Science is never going to be able to do that, about origins to begin with. But uh, in spite of that, um, the data, when looked at, I think objectively, and by the way, I think only believers have any hope of being uh, close to objective. Uh, Otherwise, the Bible says uh, we're just lost in sin and it's controlling everything. But anyway, objectively, the data lends itself to the truthfulness of Genesis, not to the contrarian opinion. And so I, I hope those things have landed and that your uh, faith has been encouraged and that uh, we will be among those who contend for the faith. Now I want to kind of turn my focus to a, a time of thinking, what, it, what does it mean and what does it look like to be like Christ? To come into Christ-likeness. And the reason I think that is on my mind is um, some experiences and time that I had while I was on vacation. You know, there, there are a lot of good reasons for vacations. <clears throat> and one of them is to just simply back out of the day-to-day grind and just take a step back and to, to kind of realize what it's all about again to get that uh, little fresh perspective. Sometimes we're in there uh, doing the day-to-day thing, working through the projects, and as they say, I've I've, uh, lost the forest for the trees. Sometimes I feel like I've got my nose stuck in a little crack in the bark, and all I can see is this tree in front of me, and I just forget there's a forest around me, and I even forget the path I was on sometimes. I'm just stuck there. And every once in a while, you need to just kind of take a step back and and get the broad view and say, what am I all about? What am I doing? And what gives meaning to my life? And those are some of the good ways to use a vacation. So I determined that while I was gone, I wanted to read a biography, a good Christian biography. I am encouraged when... I read about the lives of saints, of of God's people, who have lived well and have uh, followed Christ and left a legacy that is worth emulation. The writer of Hebrews says, "...we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us, therefore, run the race that is set before us." And that cloud of witnesses is not only uh, the, the people in the Bible whose testimonies and lives we read about in the pages of Scripture, but it's the legacy that goes on through the years and centuries of the church of people who have pursued Christ with all their heart and have left for us this, this uh, legacy of their lives and what they have experienced. And Christian biographies of people who have hungered and thirsted after God are great sources of encouragement. So I took uh, Andrew Murray's uh, biography with me. I had not read this uh, particular story. And as I got into it, I realized that there were things about Andrew Murray's life I didn't really know. And if uh, if you know anything about him, maybe you've seen some of the books, Abide in Christ, with Christ in the School of Prayer. Those are probably two of the most popular. But he was a pastor in South Africa. Between the middle of the uh, 19th century and uh, he went into the presence of the Lord, 1917, which takes him to the end of World War I and, and the beginning part of the 20th century. So he lived in that era. He lived during times of revival. And his life uh, was known all over South Africa. And then out of South Africa, it was known throughout the Christian world. Because of his writings, he wrote about life in Christ, what it is to live in the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit. That was the kind of like the driving aim of his life. And um, he was a contemporary with A.B. Simpson. Uh, Simpson was probably a few years younger than he, but he was a contemporary and was living in that time when the Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, began to grow up and, and its founder uh, laid that foundation of missionary enterprise, but also the deeper life message, and so uh, all of these things are true of him. So I was reading his biography, and it helped me to remind myself and get a grip on some of uh, on, on my goal. I want to read you something from the beginning and something at the end, and then I want to turn to the Apostle Paul. This particular biographer writes, This book, therefore, is in no sense a competitor with Professor Duplice's larger and fuller life. The aim of this work is to set forth the miracle of Dr. Murray's life. Now, I want you to catch that for a moment. The miracle of Dr. Murray's life. He says the word miracle is used in its primary meaning of that which transcends unaided natural powers and indicates the direct and personal operation of God. How many times have you heard me use the phrase, live lives that are explainable only in terms of God? It's exactly what he's saying. The miracle of Dr. Murray's life, a life that is explainable only in terms of God. It's not... The norm of human experience, it goes beyond that to be a life explainable in terms of God. He says, while this does not exclude the other work of Dr. Murray's life, it's an attempt to tell chiefly and as simply as possible the wonderful way in which God wrought out in this man of iron will, of strong personality, of gifts for leadership and government possessed by few, the gentleness and humility of Christ, till he became loved and trusted as a true shepherd of souls by thousands who never saw his face or heard his voice, but through his writing. The way God worked in his life to produce the gentleness and humility of Christ. At the end of the book, one of his relatives, a younger nephew or niece or someone, I'm not sure who, um, says this, one other fact has to be remembered. Writing about Dr. Murray after his death, one of the younger members of the family said, Uncle Andrew never grew old. He was 89 when he died, by the way. But he says he never grew old. One who was long closely associated with him said he always reminded him of the man described in the Psalms, he shall be green and full of sap. Now that doesn't mean he was sappy. <laughs> that means that he was full of life, but like a plant in its youthfulness. All the way to the end. And then they say the charm of Andrew Murray was that in him so much of the character and life of His adorable Lord had been worked out, and young men and maidens felt, as well as older people, the power of an endless life in Him. In other words, Andrew Murray's life was a life that testified to the presence and the power of God in Christ-like life. Behavior and attitude. People were drawn to him for his Christ-likeness. In reading his biography, I found myself constantly drawing parallels of the Apostle Paul, who also was a man who set out in pursuit of the Christ-life and his testimony and his experiences along the way. And it reminded me, and this is, you know, kind of the good part, it reminded me that beneath all of the, the dust and fury and, and activity of everyday life that gets stirred up, the, at, at the bottom of everything is a desire and longing of my heart to be like Jesus. I want to be like Christ. I, I have an image in my mind of, you know, being this old guy someday. I may be there. I don't know. <laughs> but being this old guy someday, that, that you know, when I'm cut, I bleed Jesus. That Jesus just comes out of me. That that His life is so formed in me that He flows through me. And that people see Him. And that that is the driving ambition of my life that cuts to the chase beyond all other considerations that I want to know Jesus Christ and be like Him in all of His fullness. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you thought about the goals of your life? Have you thought about the thing that is the driving factor? Have you recently considered your focus? Because the truth is, we tend to go where we're pointed. And if you're not careful and you've chosen the wrong goal, you may end up someday somewhere you didn't want to be. You know, the last thing I want to do when I get to the end of my life is look back and say, Wow, I really missed it. I spent my whole life chasing the wrong stuff. I want to have a goal set that is clearly in front of me that will take me where I want to end. So that I can say with the Apostle Paul, I have run the race. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. There is now laid up for me a crown. Because I have had a clear focus my whole life long. If you look in Philippians chapter 3, Paul identifies this goal for us pretty clearly. He spent the early part of the chapter kind of talking about his heritage, his pedigree, his background. He talks about his accomplishments and his achievements and who he is in the Jewish nation and what kind of a Pharisee he was. But when he gets to verse 7, he says, "...but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ..." that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, or from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or already become perfect, but I press on, in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained." Now, bear with me while I wander a bit, because I have a couple of thoughts that will converge and end up back in Philippians chapter 3. One of those thoughts is that sometimes we expect from God a transition that is very rapid. Um, Conversion is a dramatic, rapid experience. If you look at Paul's life, Before he was converted, and then you look at his conversion experience, it took place in a moment. I mean, Paul was was a passionate persecutor of the church. Not because he set out to be a persecutor of the church, but because he was a passionate Pharisee. And he was committed to the law, and to the Jewish culture, and history, and to God as revealed in the Old Testament Paul was committed to that to the point that he perceived the church to be a threat to that way of life in the Roman Empire and he determined to eradicate the church. He was passionate about that. But one day, as he was on the way to Damascus to continue his reign of terror, Jesus Christ met him in that blinding light experience and the Apostle Paul was dramatically converted. He was... Saul of Tarsus when he went into that moment and he came out, Paul, the ultimately the apostle to the Gentiles. And we have a tendency to look at those kinds of experiences and say, wow, that was a transforming moment. And it was. It, it arrested him, <laughs> altered him, turned him around, set him in a different direction. But I submit to you that Paul's transformation is into Christ-like character did not occur all at once in that moment on the Damascus Road experience. That for him, it was a journey. And it was a journey that began that day when he said yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but pursued Him the rest of his days. One of the reasons I think that is because he went back to Antioch after a while, And he was there for more than a decade unheard of, except in the local church. He was obviously growing as a leader and and becoming an elder and uh, giving some guidance to that church in Antioch. But no one heard of him outside of Antioch, because God was dealing with Paul and he was working in his life. And there were things that God was hammering out in Paul's experience. We see some of those rough edges still there when he comes back to the forefront of missionary activity and begins to go on the missionary journeys. And you remember how after the first journey, they got ready to take the second one, and he and Barnabas were talking about it, and John Mark said, I want to go. And uh, John Mark had abandoned them the first time out. It, the going got tough, and he was a young fellow, and he quit, and he went back home. And Paul said, nothing doing. I'm not taking him again. And Barnabas felt like he ought to have another chance. And the scripture says the conflict between these guys was so great that Paul ended up picking Silas and going his own way. And Barnabas took Mark and went another direction. And you see some interesting dynamics going on there. You also see Paul's whole change of mind and attitude toward John Mark later in his life when he talks about how useful and and, and what a blessing John Mark is. I don't know if he ever came to a point where he said to Barnabas, you know, you were right. (laughs) But somewhere along the line, there was a change. I noticed in reading the biography of Andrew Murray, he he was a gifted, passionate, dynamic follower of Christ, from the time that he returned to South Africa to uh, begin taking up uh, preaching and pastoral ministry. Uh, he was noted as an as a excellent preacher. People wanted to hear him. In fact, before he and his brother, who went to college and seminary together, uh, back in England and Holland, then they came back to South Africa, he... Um, Whenever their dad, who was also a pastor, would let one of the brothers preach, uh, the, it says that the, the fellow that took care of the platform and the candles and the, the pulpit would, um, would ask, uh, is it Mr. Andrew who is preaching? Because uh, And one day so the senior Andrew Murray said, why do you need to know? And he says, well, if it's, if it's young Mr. Andrew, I need to remove the candles lest they be in his way. Um, He was apparently one of these guys that couldn't keep his hands quiet as he preached. And he, on occasion, knocked over the pulpit and spilled the Bible and uh, went on preaching as if nothing happened. And he was that kind of a dramatic, dynamic kind of fellow. He was blessed with wisdom and leadership. And God uh, favored, seemed to put his favor upon him from the early days, and yet, as his biographer tells his story of how he was before and after the revival, and after he uh, came into an understanding of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his life, it is said that before that time, although he was, you know, likable in a sense, and and people um, enjoyed being with him, there was a certain sternness to him and the children perhaps feared him. But after he experienced the fullness and outpouring of the Holy Spirit in his life, the the barriers came down and the approachableness developed and the humility and the gentleness and people were amazed at how loving and kind and accessible He was to them. When I look at the life of Andrew Murray and when I look at the life of the Apostle Paul, it's an encouragement to me. I see as I look at these lives that God is at work. And I want Him to be at work in me. I want Him to take down The walls and to break down any hardness or self centeredness. And I want him to come through me in his beauty and his glory. I realize, even as I say that today, that's kind of weird. It's not a macho manly thing. Oh, but it is. I want to be like my Savior in his tenderness and in his kindness, and in his humility. And the Apostle Paul was on that pursuit. The other thing that I want to chase just for a moment, and then bring all of these back to Philippians 3, Philippians some years ago wrote a book called Disappointment with God. And I have thought a lot about that. I've thought a lot about why we get disappointed with God. And quite honestly, the reason that we usually get disappointed with God is because He has not measured up to our expectations in some way. He's let us down. We had some, some thing in mind that we expected God to do and He did not come through. Some healing didn't occur, some miracle didn't happen, some job didn't materialize, some thing in our life didn't turn out right, uh, you know, whatever it it was, there's some disappointment there. And we have this notion in the West, and I say that because I don't know what it's like to live in Africa or uh, some of the... uh, to be a believer in a Muslim country. or I don't know what that's like, but the the testimonies and the word I hear is that they have a very different perspective. We, on the other hand, are so accustomed to comfort and uh, convenience and to have all of these material things around us that we have kind of proclaimed in the church as well that... God, when you become a Christian and follow Him, God is going to make your life better. And to us, better means more stuff, good health, um, perfect families. Um, Everything is going to be nice and we're all going to die in our sleep at about 105 uh, with perfect health until that moment comes. That's just kind of the imagery that develops in people's mind. And when somehow or another life doesn't turn out quite the way we hoped it would, disappointment with God sets in. There's a verse of Scripture that always pops into my mind when I think of that phrase, disappointment with God, and that is this verse, Let God be true, though every man be a liar. And what that means to me is that if if God is not acting according to my expectations. I got something wrong. Because God never fails. God never ceases to be consistent with who He is. He is always the same. He is the unchanging one. And He is faithful. And He is good. And if I'm not seeing it, I have something wrong. And I need to reevaluate what my criteria was. Because God did not mess up. But many believers come to the conclusion that God has let them down. And it's because we have a misunderstanding of who He is and what He has promised and what. He has mapped out for our lives. And usually, it's because we did not get what we wanted from Him. Now, I want to take you, having said that, I want to take you back to Paul's testimony. Because Paul tells us that in his life, he made a choice. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may be found in Him." That I may gain Christ. Sorry, I missed the line. That I may gain Christ. What is Paul telling us in those verses? He says, I looked at life and at Jesus Christ, and I made a decision. I found the pearl of great price, and I made a choice. You remember that parable that Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven? He says it's like the fellow who's walking in a field one day and he, uh, you know, kicks over some dust and lo and behold at his feet is a pearl. What I don't know what it's doing in the middle of this field, but it's, it's there and it's the most beautiful pearl jewel he's ever seen in his life. He recognizes it has incredible value, but he also realizes it's in someone else's field. And so what he does is, and the rules still apply today, gas and oil rights or whatever, gold or whatever. You know, you find it in somebody else's property. (laughs) You can't have it unless it's your property. And so Jesus said, this man goes and he sells everything he has to buy that field. And he is not interested in the dirt. He wants the right to take the pearl out of the ground for himself. And and he made a choice that that the acquiring of that field was worth the loss of everything else he owned which he liquidated and turned it into cash so he could buy this field. Because he wanted that pearl. And the apostle Paul said, "I have made a choice. My choice is Jesus. I want to know Him, and I have valued Him. You see the very words, New American Standard Bible, but you can check other translations, it comes through, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. What is he saying? The value of knowing Christ surpasses everything else. To me, it's more important. I want to know Him. I want to know Him to the extent that I have put everything else in my life, on the auction block, as fair game, I'll sell it all, I want to know Jesus. Now let's you and I pause for a moment and ask the question, how badly do you want to know Jesus Christ? What would you give to know Him? What are you willing To sell off. To turn your back on. To count as rubbish in terms of the appraisal of the things of your life. What are you willing to negate that you might know Jesus Christ? Paul said, everything. There's nothing in my life more important to me than knowing Jesus. Is that true of you? It does not say that Paul gave all those things up immediately. It doesn't say that one day he was this aspiring Pharisee on the road to success, and the next day he was in chains in a Roman prison. It just says that Paul made a decision. And his decision was, there is no cost too great that I will not give it if I can know Jesus Christ. And then he gives his testimony. He said, I made that choice. And then he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Now he tells us where the rubber met the road. He said, I made a decision and I have paid a price. And he said, along the way, I suffered loss. Those things were taken out of his life one by one in a costly fashion that Paul describes as suffering. He experienced loss in his life. Perhaps I should remind you at this point where he is as he is writing this. He is sitting in Rome in prison. He does not apparently have his books with him, his parchments and the things that he valued. He probably doesn't have more than one change of clothes, if that. He is chained to a Roman guard from everything we know about the culture and times. He has no privacy. He has no possessions. He has only what his friends bring him to eat. He's sitting in jail from a human standpoint denuded of all of the material value of life. He has people in this very town that despise him and hope to increase his suffering. He tells us that in the letter. They just want to make it hard for him. So not everyone is owed and awed by the dazzling Apostle Paul. Some of them just want to make his life miserable. He is no longer respected among Israelites as the leading teacher. He has lost that prestige. And he is not writing a book called Disappointed with God. In fact, in the beginning of this chapter, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. He is the one who, with Silas, sang in the Philippian jail when he got arrested and beaten there. And now he's sitting in a Roman jail, and he doesn't know the outcome at this point. He doesn't know how the sentence is going to go. He may get sentenced to death. For all he knows, he's on death row. He doesn't know how the the thing is going to turn out. It's in this condition that he writes these words. He says, my life has been the story of a choice I made to know Jesus Christ. And in that choice, I have suffered loss along the way. It has been a costly decision. But he says, it's been worth it all. I want to know Jesus. And, and listen to his testimony. He says, and may be found in him, verse 9, Not having a righteousness of my own derived from law, but that which is through faith in Christ. You know, I was was thinking about this in terms of the truths that are most solid in our lives. Do you know what truths are most solid in my life? The ones that I changed through study of the Scriptures. Do you follow me? I mean, I grew up with certain ideas and notions that I was—I grew up in church, I grew up in the Schofield Reference Bible, I grew up with all kinds of, of Christian teaching. And as I began to get into the Scriptures, I began to evaluate some of those things that I had been taught, and the ones that have become most solid in my heart, that I'm convinced of, are, are where I have had to change my mind. I've had to come to a different conclusion. And and my doctrine, I think, has been refined and purified. Some people may not think that, but but for me, I think it has become refined. And it's when I've been forced to to change. I I, I grew up. Uh, this may sound strange to some of you, but perhaps some of you who uh, have uh, left the Catholic Church to follow Christ, perhaps you will identify with this. I grew up a Southern Baptist. I was. I don't know, somewhere in my late teens when I realized that there was very little difference culturally between a Roman Catholic and a Southern Baptist. We thought the same way. I thought, growing up, that the only way to heaven was to be a Southern Baptist. And and you had to be a Southern Baptist, and you had to follow the Baptist line. And I remember being in another church for the first time ever, and I picked out the hymn book, to sing a hymn, and it was not the Baptist hymnal. It wasn't blue. It didn't say Broadman Press on it. It didn't say Baptist hymnal. And I felt like I was betraying God. I mean, that's how I felt emotionally. I am betraying God. I have left the faith. I'm in a Methodist church. I mean, it was horrible. And... <laughs> Emotionally, it was. And I knew in my head that that was all wrong, but my heart was saying, no, no, no! And where I've grown and changed and matured, those transition points have become the strongest points. I'm not a denominational focused freak anymore. (laughs) You know, I, I think there's a bigger place in the kingdom for some other folks, as long as they have the gospel message straight. So that's been a transition with me. I thought I better give you that explanation, because some of you were looking at me really strangely like, what did he change? Paul started out a Pharisee. His life was absorbed in keeping the law to the T. He wanted to, to dot every I. He wanted to cross every T. He wanted his Outward behavior to perfectly align with every detail of the revelation of Scripture, because to a good Jew, the highest form of worship was to keep the law. And Paul was determined to be that person. I mean, that was what drove his life. That's why he was trying to get rid of all the Christians. That was what motivated him. Do not think that that transition to become the the apostle to the Gentiles who proclaimed the death of the law in the resurrection of Christ, don't think that came easily to him. That was changing the fabric of everything that he was. It was an about face for him. It was embracing an entirely different ideology of righteousness. And his testimony here in this verse is, in knowing Christ, I want His life to come out of me. I do not want it to be the one I can produce on my own. When he says, I want to be found not having a righteousness of my own, this is exactly what he's saying. I do not want anything that stinks of my flesh. However... Wonderful the window dressing that I can put on my behavior. I cannot produce the living God, Christ-like character in my own strength. And I don't want anything that I could do. I want Jesus coming through me. I want His life living through me. I want the real, genuine article. When people cut me, I want to bleed Jesus. I want Him to be the fabric of my life. I want to know Him. I want to be so close to Him that only Jesus is seen. That's exactly what He means by verse 8. And He says in verse 10, that I can know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. How many times have you read over those words and wondered, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to, to, to be conformed to his death, to know the power of his resurrection? And I, and I began to think about that and meditate on it. And I realized that Paul is telling us something here about his journey. When is it that you need to know the power of God, the power of his resurrection? Whenever Paul wants to talk about how great the power of God is, he always talks about the resurrection. He can think of nothing in, in human history, parting the Red Sea, turning water to wine, well, it, it doesn't matter. He can think of nothing in human history that is a greater proof and demonstration of the power of God than the resurrection He says that to the Ephesian church. He says, I'm praying for you that you can know the surpassing greatness of his power, which was demonstrated in Christ when God raised him from the dead. I mean, that is the pivotal moment for Paul. That is the greatest miracle in all of human history for for many reasons. And so Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. When is it that you need to see the power of the resurrection? At work in your life, when everything's going well, when you're relaxing in a bed of ease, when your life is on track and every all the lines are falling in pleasant places, I don't think so. <laughs> yes, okay Very good, Carrie. Thank you for keeping me on track here. <laughs> We always need the power of His resurrection. When is it most obvious? When it ain't going so good. And you need God to come through for you. You need God to manifest Himself. You need Him to show up and do something that demonstrates His glory. And I think Paul was saying... I want to be in that place where I need the glory of God to show up. Listen to his testimony. Falling out with Barnabas. Surviving a shipwreck only to land on the on the on the shore and he's reaching for wood in the in the pile of wood. They're trying to build a fire and get warm and dried out. You know, and and Paul has said, Listen to the captain, listen. God is gonna save everybody on the ship, God is determined to save us all, and then the ship falls apart. And they're all hanging on to the wood, you know, whatever survives. And but they all end up on the shore, and it's like amazing. The whole the whole crew and passengers survive, and then Paul goes to reach for a log and he gets snake bit. And now they said, Ah, the gods are having their revenge, he really is a criminal, he should have died at sea, and now he's gonna die from this snake. And Paul doesn't die. The surpassing greatness of the power of God is demonstrated to the people, to the the ship's um, crew, to the passengers, to the islanders. The power of God is demonstrated. What had to happen for the power of God to be demonstrated? A shipwreck and a snake bite. Are you willing for the shipwreck and the snake bite? You know, I mean, don't... Wow, that's so neat. He got bit. He got bit by a poisonous snake. That's not neat. What happened is great, but Paul suffered. So he says, I want to know the surpassing greatness of his power. We know the surpassing greatness of His power when we're living in a realm of existence that is supernatural. When God is coming through in ways that people can never perform. When God is doing stuff that we look at and recognize, this is God. Because I'm in a place of need. And, and honestly, as Carrie pointed out, the right perspective is that's every moment. But we tend not to be aware of that until we're in crisis. And we need God. We need His power. And then Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. How do you enter into the sufferings of Jesus Christ? Do you do like some people do in some countries? Uh, Do you wrap yourself with barbed wire? Do you uh, pick up a cross and carry it Uh, through the streets of Manila. How do you enter into the sufferings of Christ? How do you demonstrate that? And I started thinking about the mystery behind that. And then I realized that the writer of Hebrews talked about sufferings. It says, He learned, Jesus Christ learned obedience through the things He suffered And I start, and in the context of that, it's right after he said, we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with us, one who's been tested in all points. And then I went in my mind to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying there saying, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Paul has just told the Philippians in in an earlier section, we call it chapter 2, he has just said, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not count it robbery to be equal with God but He gave up that prestigious role and position for a season came down to this earth in the form of a, of a normal man of flesh and He experienced the trials and the suffering and the temptation and He was obedient to the point of death even to the cross. And I realized that what we are being told here is that every time Jesus was confronted with the choice, my way or God's way, He made the decision to obey the Father. Everything I do is what the Father is doing. My life is the outworking of the Father's will. I never do anything from my own initiative. In the Gospel of John, he says those very words. I never do anything from my own initiative. Friends, you and I get disappointed with God because we want to do things from our own initiative, and they don't work out. And we're unhappy. God let me down. But Paul describes that behavior of being submissive to the will of God as obedience, which involves a certain amount of dying. Because every time we're confronted with the option to do it my way or to do it God's way, That's what Paul means when he says that I may know and be conformed to his death. That in every way I might be a follower of Jesus Christ, denying my own desires, obeying the Father, doing his will, submitting to him that the life of Christ Jesus might be formed in me. I want to know him. And Paul made a decision that set him on a course of many other subordinate decisions. The dominant drive is, I want to know Jesus Christ. And then he was confronted with all these little micro decisions along the way. This way or God's way? This way or God's way? This way or God's way? way? And Paul said, I've made the choice. No matter what it costs me, I want to follow Jesus. I want to pay the price, whatever it is. I'm willing to enter into his sufferings in obedience. I'm willing to follow him to death. He's sitting on what may be death row, as far as he knows. He says, I'm willing to, to obey all the way to death. But I want to know Jesus Christ. And Paul is not writing about how disappointed he is with the way his life has turned out. He's writing about praise and glory and blessing and the intimacy of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've become, that I've arrived. But he said, this is what I do. I forget yesterday and its failures that's behind me. I'm looking forward to the upward call of God in Christ. I am in pursuit. Of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you're in pursuit of Jesus Christ, you will never be disappointed. He is a prize that is accessible. He says, if you hunger and thirst for me, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. He is not far away. He is waiting for the person who will say, I want God more than anything. And he will make himself accessible to that person. So as I read Andrew Murray and I read the Apostle Paul and I read his Thessalonian letters, I I am reminded, friends, That is what I want in life. I have a lot of interest. I have a lot of different kinds of hobbies. I have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of business and other things that, you know, in the administration and care of our church family, there's a lot of stuff. But I want to know Jesus. And I want Him to come out through me. Not my own plastic, superficial, humanly generated righteousness. I want Jesus coming out of the pores of my skin. I want to leak Him. I want to flow Him. I want His life coming through me. And I wonder if we are all in that same place. Have you made that choice consciously that the most important thing in the world to you is to know Jesus Christ? To put all your possessions up for grabs. All your ambitions up for grabs. And to make the conscious choice that He is the single pearl of great price worth everything else. He matters more than anything on the planet. If, If you do that, you will not be disappointed. He will meet you, and He will satisfy you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He will... Quench your thirst. He that comes to me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He will satisfy the longings of your soul. Father, I pray this morning that you would refine our passions to a single passion. That you would purify our goal to one goal. And that we would embrace the journey to know Jesus Christ. The surpassing greatness of His power. The fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed even to the image of His death. That we might know Him. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.